This is On Air with Euphoria. Hello, I'm Peter Hellings. I work as a rhinologist at the University Hospitals in Leuven, Belgium, and I'm also part of the board of Euphoria. And we are having this podcast in Berlin now, where we just are at the end of the Euphorium. I'm happy to, to interview and to exchange some ideas with a wonderful colleague of mine, which is Dermot Ryan from the UK. Please, Dermot, introduce yourself. Thanks, Peter. I'm Dermot Ryan. I'm a recently retired general practitioner from the UK. Uh, I'm a member of the um, asthma expert group of, of, of Euphoria, but also an honorary clinical uh, lecturer at the Asthma UK Centre of Applied Research at the University of Edinburgh. Wonderful. I'm delighted to have been here. Wonderful. Well, for us, it's a very euphoric experience uh, to exchange some ideas with a primary care physician with your knowledge of respiratory diseases, because in the end, we don't often have the opportunity to have common meetings where we meet also our primary care physicians. And I wonder about your impression about the euphorium that we just had in Berlin and how the lecturers from our top-notch allergologists, pulmonologists, ENT colleagues, as well as primary care physicians like you have been inspired by the content of the lecture. So what was actually inspiring you to do better and to actually pave the way for better care uh, for chronic respiratory diseases? What really turned me on about the whole session was the multidisciplinarity of the, of the sessions and of the people who were here, the ease in which they interacted with one another, there was an intimacy about the event that you don't often get uh, at this sort of meeting and a free flow and exchange of ideas, which I thought was very, very helpful. It's hard sometimes for primary care to get a voice in amongst the specialists because clearly they are at the cutting edge of everything that they do. But behind the cutting edge, there's a rump of disease and that rump of disease largely lies within primary care. And sometimes the solutions offered by specialists are not the ones which apply in primary care. So part of the job of Euphorium, as you have recognized, is identifying those patients in primary care that need to be referred to our specialist colleagues. And I think that is going to be one of the way forwards for Euphorium, ensuring that primary care is part of the whole activity of the organization, not, of course, directing it, but to some extent orchestrating it so that the specialists understand what our needs are as well as we understanding what the specialist needs are and how we can work together to ensure the optimum, outpatient, optimum outcome for our patients with all of these uh, particularly type 2 mediated diseases. Thank you, Dermot. These are very uh, solid statements and, and statements that's also paved the way for better care, including prevention, including optimal care, because nowadays we experience mainly the lack of the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. And you point towards a referral or delays in referral as maybe one of the reasons why we do not always have the opportunity for prevention anymore in the patients that we see with respiratory diseases. So how would you envisage to simplify uh, referral patterns and to make sure primary care physicians get guidance in when and how to refer a patient to, irrespective of the healthcare system where you work in, of course. But in the ideal world, how should it work and what would be your recommended next steps? I, I think that one of the problems with primary care is that we, are, we look after so many different diseases. So a brief synopsis of advances in these areas brought down to primary care, made available to primary care, 
in the primary care literature so that GPs recognize that there are such things as biologics. There are different treatment modalities for atopic dermatitis, for urticaria, for uh, anaphylaxis, for asthma, for, for chronic rhinosinusitis, for rhinitis, that can help manage their patients. Because we know from the increasing literature, the massive impact on the quality of life of the patient, and not only the patient, but their extended family, um, how th these diseases have. So by reducing that impact, by ensuring that the patient gets the correct treatment, by having been referred, being fully assessed, and having precision medicine practiced upon them, um, that they, they live a much better life as a result of that. What you state here sounds like music in our ears because this is exactly the, reflecting the mission of euphoria. Huh? But uh, what I see also as a huge opportunity for the primary care community is to look indeed at, at the patient in a holistic way, in a more holistic way than the specialist. You know the working and living environment of a patient much better than we as a specialist. So I think you have the real... Uh, benefit and also the asset of working on the environment, on the lifestyle, on the holistic approach of a patient. And despite the complexities of addressing all of these issues and some of the scientific knowledge that we lack in order to start recommending diet and recommending uh, yeah, sufficient vitamin and other food intake, I think you have a huge opportunity there. Uh, would you agree on that? I think that lifestyle recommendations are very, very important to the management of just about any chronic disease. They're not necessarily messages that the patients want to receive. And sometimes they're messages that the patients can't afford to implement. So, for example, fresh food and vegetables, freshly prepared food, um, can be very difficult for some patients to achieve. And, of course, the, the easy access of fast food and junk food, which I think is a major source of the inflammasome, uh, it's, it's, per, it's pervasive, it's everywhere. And trying to get people to change their eating habits away from going down for a takeaway five times a week to maybe just having a takeaway once a week and cooking at home the rest of the time may be part of the way forward, as well as increasing the amount of exercise they have, increasing their step count. I don't mean going out and running marathons, just increasing your daily step count, spending more time on your feet rather than on your bottom, less time watching TV, more time outside. All of these things, I think, will change or help to change the way in which the patient reacts to everything in their environment and possibly lead to an amelioration of their disease in itself, and that's certainly been proven for asthma, uh, and reduce the need for referral for some of these medications. So sometimes medication is not the best answer. Sometimes the change in your lifestyle is the best answer. I couldn't agree more. Uh, during the euphorium, we had some hints and some information about differences and similarities also in smoking cessation campaigns in different countries in Europe. Do you as a primary care physician also stress the importance of stop or quitting smoking in patients with chronic respiratory diseases? Quitting smoking at every stage of a person's life, including antenatally. So getting women who are pregnant to stop smoking and explaining the hazards of smoking, both to her and to the child, and at every stage thereafter, I think is part of our role. Patients don't always want to hear that message, but most patients are just waiting to have the opportunity to be told to stop smoking and then perhaps given access 
to a plan that helps them to stop smoking. I mean, we've seen in the UK, in, in my professional lifetime, smoking rates go down from 45% down to 13%. That's a very significant reduction over a period of 30 plus years. We're not at zero yet, and we need to be w aware of the dangers of vaping, substituting smoking. However, in the short term, it probably is part of the solution. But getting people off cigarettes, but hopefully not substituting that bad habit with another habit, I think is very definitely part of our role. No, I couldn't agree more, and we also work on that, but it's challenging to also convince the health policy makers to be kind of strict in, in, in the new rules that they apply. And health policy makers uh, should be ambitious in that perspective, but not always have the right, the right attitude. This, and, and also are approached by lobby groups uh, that course. might counteract mm -hmm. uh, strict actions to be implemented. I would like to come back to the content of this euphorium and some of the topics we dealt with, like artificial intelligence, which looks a bit uh, surrealistic for now in many domains, maybe even more so in primary care. So what is your opinion about the future position of artificial intelligence in primary care? I think that there's no one answer to that question. I, I very much like the idea proposed by, by, by Leif Bjorma of the cluster analysis of patients. And so somebody comes in, say, a 50-year-old woman who is a smoker, who's got a past history of early menopause, for example, and hypertension, who comes in with a new complaint, and you type all the details in, and maybe some blood tests that you've had done previously, or other parameters, and you get an idea, an answer of what might be the best way to approach a problem, what might have the greatest success of working, and if that doesn't work, where, where to go next. Because one of the big problems with guidelines is they're, by and large, one-condition guidelines, whereas the vast majority of our patients yeah. have multiple uh, comorbidities. So I think AI will help us to manage those comorbidities uh, based around the needs of the predominant condition which is affecting the patient at that time. So that's one way it will help. I think from the point of view of interacting with the patient, uh, I very much like what Stephanie Dramberg said about blended care. So I think a lot of uh, politicians and healthcare managers think that apps are going to be the solution for everything. Well, that is not the case. Uh, Paolo Matricardi in, here in Berlin, the Charité, did a study demonstrating very, very clearly the difference between just giving somebody an app and talking to them about the app, selling them the app, showing them how it used, what the benefits of the patient were, as well as the everybody else, uh, and increase the usage of the app by, oh, up to about 45-50%. So many people will not use digital technology. They're suspicious of it. They're suspicious of the motives behind it. On the other hand, there are people who are absolutely completely overboard on it, uh, and they think it's going to be fantastic. Uh, unfortunately, some of those experiments have gone very, very badly wrong. Um, and certainly in the United Kingdom, much espoused by our previous health care minister, uh, Matt Hancock, who was a great believer in, in this with Babylon Health and investing in massive amounts of money in, in, in computer-aided decision-making at a distance from the patient, and it, it just doesn't work. Because Could you explain why it didn't work? It didn't work because there's no interaction between okay. the doctor and the patient. And one of the things I said during the panel discussion yesterday was that medicine is a blend of science and art. 
well, if you're just giving somebody an app, you, you have a bit of science and maybe some pseudoscience, but you're missing the art. The patient, and Susanna Lau said as well, the doctor-patient relationship is a very important therapeutic alliance. Paracelsus said that the demeanor of the doctor often has a greater effect on the patient than any medication or intervention that you can make on the doctor. The calming, the reassurance, the talking, the being listened to, you can't take the doctor out of the equation. No, I think that's a wonderful statement and maybe this is good as a conclusion too. So irrespective of all the big data and artificial intelligence exercises and all the digital solutions we might think of, in the end, physicians will not be replaced by digital tools. And we all agree that a digital tool could be to some extent maybe a help for screening, a help for any kind of decision making. But in the end, it's common sense, focus on the most bothersome symptoms, taking into account also the full history of the patient that will ultimately lead to the best kind of option of care for an individual patient. I think we agree on that. Would you like to make any kind of final statement about your impression of the Euphorium and how it has inspired you to, to be more motivated to implement optimal care in future daily practice? Well, I think it's a young organization, but I think it's a dynamic organization. And what I particularly like is the publication of simple guidelines to management of common conditions which are accessible, amenable, comprehensible, and quick to read and understand. You know, when, you, when you're faced with 170 pages of, 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 of GINA and 200 pages of EPOS, no GP is going to read through that because they can't, because they have the same for heart disease, have the same for diabetes, psychiatric abnormalities. It goes on and on and on and on. So something which is concise, succinct, and available is always going to be a help. And I think you've led the field uh, in that way. Happy to hear that because indeed we are now designing and thinking about uh, the next pocket guides and what could help uh, patients and physicians more in the future apart from the lay translations or the translations of the current pocket guides in lay language. We are considering also new pocket guides. Could you give any hint of the new pocket guide that Euphoria could develop and where you think uh, the topic corresponds to an unmet need in the field. One of the things which guidelines do very, very poorly is set a ceiling at which GPs should consider referral. So I, I think pocket guides which indicate when a patient should be referred for simple conditions would probably be the most useful way forward. I promise we will work on that and I'm sure next year we'll have a TV show where we launch your <laughs> new idea uh, uh, in a pocket guide of uh, guidance of GPs on referral for chronic sinus disease, respiratory allergy, asthma and maybe chronic bronchitis. I think it's a wonderful idea and let's join forces with all the expert panels of Euphoria to make it happen. Thank you very much, Dermot. This Thank has you, been a very, a very nice uh, interaction and uh, we definitely will be able to count on your support and, and uh, collaboration in the future. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This was brought to you by Euphoria, inspiring the future of respiratory care. This podcast was supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Sanofi Regeneron.